I heard a story one time about this guy and his friend, and they loved baseball. They loved baseball so much. They, they played all through their, their youth and their, their teens and into their 20s and 30s. They got into the major leagues, and then one of the friends died, and he went to heaven. And he came back somehow to visit the friend that was still here. And the friend that was still here says, I gotta, gotta ask you, you know, do they have baseball in heaven? <laughs> Couldn't imagine it without it. And the friend that came back said, Well, there's good news and bad news. The good news is they do have baseball in heaven. The bad news is you're pitching tomorrow. The afterlife, it's on all of our minds at different times. What is going to be there? What's it going to be like? That's been the way throughout history. The ancient Egyptians, 2,500 years before Christ, there was one pharaoh named Cheops. How's that for a name? They put what they called a solar barge, this ship of light, in with his body so that he could sail through the afterlife. Native Americans, when someone is buried, would often put useful tools in with them when they buried them. You know, a bow and arrow, a hatchet, sometimes even their horse, so that they would have them for the afterlife. The Greeks would commonly put a coin in the mouth of a corpse so that they could pay their way across the river of death. Well, all through history, people have had the afterlife on their mind. There's one group that was kind of an exception to that, They lived at the time of Jesus. We know them as the Sadducees. The Sadducees were kind of enemies of the Pharisees. You could think of them kind of like maybe denominations in the church that don't get along too good. Or maybe this year you could think of them as different government parties fighting with each other. They did not like each other. And Acts 13.28 tells us, The Sadducees say there is no resurrection. That's one of the things they believe. This life is all there is. There is no resurrection. There are neither angels nor spirits. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. That's why they were always at each other. Fighting. Now it says in verse 27... Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Now think about Jesus. It's Wednesday, two days before he goes to the cross. And all these people keep coming to him with questions and debates. And I I wonder if in his humanity he ever felt like, man, I'm going to start boycotting some debates because they keep coming. They keep coming to me with all these questions. But I know when we watch him, you see that he didn't. Jesus loved even the religious rulers that were constantly coming against him, even when they came with questions to try to trap him. I was talking with my son Jaden about arguments, and I was trying to teach him something about how, what's the best way to end an argument? I'm trying to teach him you know, how to discuss disagreements tactfully and with love. You know what he said when I said, what's the best way to end an argument? He said, prove it to him. And then say, burn. Because <laughs> that's what a lot of the kids say today when somebody gets insulted or something. And I said, Jane, that's not really what I had in mind. Let's, let's work on this some more. I can see if I was in Jesus' shoes, it would be tempting to, to have that kind of approach with these guys. But Jesus loved 
not only the tax collectors and the prostitutes, he loved even these religious sinners enough to continue to speak the truth to them. He's full of grace and truth. So these guys didn't believe in the afterlife. Now, where does that leave you? Well, one place it leaves you is, hey, I'm living for this life. This life is all there is. I'm going to get mine. And that's the way a lot of the Sadducees lived. They were the guys that were making bank off the sales in the temple. They were getting rich off that. They were wealthy. They were elite. And you know what? If this life is all there is, that makes sense. Might as well get mine now because when I'm dead, it's over. That's one option when you don't believe there's an afterlife. The other option where I think some people live is you live life in paralyzing fear of that moment of death, right? If there's nothing after this, man, you spend your whole life avoiding the end, right? It paralyzes some of us. C.S. Lewis, many of you know he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. How many of you know that he also wrote a space trilogy? Any sci-fi people in here? A couple, and probably a couple that won't admit it. That's okay. I'm a sci-fi person. He wrote this space trilogy. The first book was called Out of the Silent Planet. And in that book, a man named Ransom goes from this planet to another planet, and he meets this alien being named Oyarsa. And Oyarsa says something to Ransom that I think has profound biblical ramifications on our lives. Check out this quote. Oyarsa says this to the human being Ransom. It is the bent one. The Lord of your world. Who's that? Who's the bent one? Who's the, the God of this age? Satan. It's the bent one, the Lord of your world, who wastes your lives and befouls them with flying from what you know will overtake you in the end. Death. Isn't that how a lot of people live? Just trying to fly away from that fearfully. Paralyzing fear. He closes by saying, if you were subjects of God, you would have peace. Man, that is really profound. You want to live without that paralyzing fear of death. You live as a subject of God. It can free you. But it's hard, isn't it? Because we can't see on the other side of the curtain. And so we have questions that sometimes cause us concern. I want to show you something really cool. I went to have coffee with my friend Keith this week. Keith is blind. And after we went to McDonald's and enjoyed our time together, we went back to his apartment. This is the side of his fridge. You know what that is? It's a map that has Braille figures on it that somebody made for him so that he could learn his way around his trailer park. He can run his fingers over those bumps on there and find his way in his mind to the mailbox, the trash cans, other places he needs to go. And then he goes out and walks those actual roads to get there. I thought, man, that is really amazing. I felt that map, and I thought, what, how challenging that would be. And I think about what that's like. He's, he's really taking a step of faith, isn't he? He's feeling the best he can to see what's out there, and, and then he steps into it. And that's maybe how we feel when we think about the afterlife. We, we read in Scripture, we hear from God, but there's still this sense like, really? I still go forward with some reservation. Well, let's unpack this and see what God can speak to us about the afterlife. I pray it will comfort us this morning. First, we want to look at their story problem. How many of you guys hate story problems in school? 
I hated those things, man. They take so many twists and turns. If you hate those in school, you're going to hear what, what they brought to Jesus, and you're going to say another story problem. Check this out. Verse 28. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That was common Old Testament practice. If a guy's married and they're not able to have kids and the guy dies, it's his brother's job to have a child with his wife so that they can keep the family property. Now here comes the story problem. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. She's been married seven times now in this life, right? Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? <laughs> what are they trying to do? They're trying to make resurrection look really absurd, right? Because they don't believe in it. They're, they're saying, Jesus, are there going to be seven brothers duking it out in heaven? She's mine, she's mine. That's my wife. I mean, they're showing the absurdity in their minds of resurrection. But Jesus is going to show them, you got resurrection all wrong because you're assuming it's just like this life. It's not. There are going to be some key differences. Let me show you what those differences are. So he goes on in verse 34. Jesus replied, and just right there, I want to say they're disappointed that he starts answering because they're hoping he's going to stand there like, uh, you're right. But he's got a reply. He always does. He's the God of all truth. He says, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they're like the angels. They're God's children, since they're children of the resurrection. There going to be some similarities, but there's going to be a lot of differences. And I want to unpack this. There's some things we can learn about the resurrection from Jesus' answer. If you're wondering, what's the afterlife hold? Let, let's look at this. First, What's up with this part where he says, those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come? I talked with someone that was reading this passage with us this week, and, and they were honest. They said, that word scares me, because I don't know if I'm worthy. What does that mean to be worthy? What do I have to do? How do I make sure I'm worthy to take part in the resurrection to life? Because we know there's resurrection to life and resurrection to death, Right? So it says in Matthew 25, 46, some will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Everybody's resurrected. It's just, am I resurrected to eternal death or eternal life? So how do I know I'm worthy? You talk about a question worth pondering. I want to know the answer to that. We start racking up our list of to-dos and not-to-dos, right? But you remember in John chapter 6, after Jesus fed the crowds, they asked him, in verse 28, what must we do to do the works God requires? Translation, how do I make sure I'm worthy for eternal life? You know what he said in verse 29? The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus Christ. Trust in him. It is by grace through faith. That's how you become worthy. In Christ. Not by your own works. Now what's up with this? No marriage part, right? If you're in a good marriage like I am, 
Sometimes you read that and maybe you're reading through and you're like, man, that's, that's kind of a bummer. I love my wife. I love Carolyn like crazy. What's up with this no marriage stuff, God? Well, a couple guys have unpacked it. Scholars have looked at it. And let's think about it, okay? First, one, one reason for marriage is procreation. People keep dying on this planet. We've got to keep, keep the population going, right? Well, guess what? There's, there's no more death in that age, so we don't need procreation. Another reason for marriage and family is the passing on of truth to children. But in that age, those who live in the resurrection, they, they will know God face to face. They, they, they'll all know Him. Marriage is also, according to Paul, a picture of Christ and the church to a watching world. A husband should love his wife like Christ loves the church. And the, the wife should love her husband like the church loves Christ. Well, guess what? In the resurrection, the, the wedding supper's already happened. Christ has sat down with His bride. And there is no longer any world to watch the picture. But you think about marriage, the, the closest relationship we know on this planet, right? And you think about the intimacies of marriage and the joy and the closeness that come in marriage. And for many of us, that's, that's the highest high we know on this planet, right? The intimacies of marriage. So some of us say, well, what kind of heaven can it be without that? C.S. Lewis used the word suprasexual, above sexual. Some of us think that's the highest joy. What he's saying, there's a joy even higher than that in our face-to-face -face relationship with God. He painted this in a fiction work, which is the second book of the series I referenced earlier called Paralandra. This guy, Ransom, is on another planet now, and there's a woman there. And then this other guy, Weston, shows up at the planet later. And he assumes they've had an intimate relationship. And the guy that shows up second says, You asked me to believe that you have been living here with that woman without intimacy? Sexless? And the first guy says, Sexless? Call it that if you like. It's about as good a description of living here as it would be to say that a man has forgotten water because Niagara Falls didn't immediately give him the idea of making it into cups of tea. Let me unpack that. What he's saying is, what, what I'm experiencing here is like standing in front of the majesty and the awe and the power of Niagara Falls. Nobody stands there looking at that power and awe and mind-blowing sight and saying, man, nobody thinks about a little cup of tea Right? You're overtaken with the power and the majesty and the awe. He's, going to say in the, he's saying the highest high you know on this planet is going to pale in comparison to what it's like to be face to face with your heavenly Father. That makes me think how amazing must that be for him, for him to say that. Even in this life, it ought to be the consuming love of our lives, right? God first. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29, the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world 
as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. All these things are good things. He's just saying, hold them lightly so that your love for the Father outweighs them all. Your love for the Father's got to make everything else pale in comparison. Now, one of the big questions we get about, okay, there's not marriage, but am I going to recognize my spouse? You know, am I going to recognize my friends? You know, for, for me, am I going to be up there and there's going to be this beautiful redhead that keeps smiling at me and I'm going to be like, who is that lady? Why does she keep smiling at me? She's cute, but I don't remember her. No, I don't think so. And here's a couple reasons why. We look at God's plan. His plan ultimately goes back to relationship, right? Started with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before there was anything else. Perfect communion with each other. And when He put man and woman in the garden, there was a perfect relationship there before sin between them and with God. So being so much about relationship, I cannot imagine God putting us in a place where we got to walk around not knowing the people we loved. doesn't make sense. Add to that, that Jesus, when He was resurrected, you remember he, he had a body that looked a lot like the body He lived in before He died. It still had the holes. The disciples recognized Him unless He didn't want them to in a couple situations. Evidently, He was able to, to hide it. But when, when He walked through a wall and walked into their room and started eating fish, they knew it was Him. They didn't have to guess who it was. And the Bible says He was the first fruits of those who were resurrected. That means there's more coming. You know who that is? That's you and I who believe in Jesus Christ. So yes, I believe we'll be able to recognize each other. Paul talks about what our bodies are going to be like. He said this body's buried perishable, but in the resurrection it's going to be raised imperishable, made to last forever, like, like Duracell on steroids, you know. All the weaknesses we have here will be gone. Will be gone. I talked to Keith about that. My friend, I, I can't imagine the first day he looks around the new heaven and the new earth and, and sees a tree or a flower. Right now, he doesn't even know what red or blue or green is. He's going to see. And whatever ails us here is going to be a thing of the past. We have a spiritual body, but we'll be able to recognize one another. He says, like the angels. Now, I don't know about you guys. This confuses a lot of people. Like I had a grandma that used to tell me that when we die, we turn into angels. Have you guys ever had anybody tell you that? Yeah, it's a, it's a common thought. It comes from this phrase, but we know from a biblical overarching perspective, angels and humans are different. What's it mean that we're like the angels in heaven then? Well, you know what their highest joy is? Their highest joy is worshiping the king. That's what drives their heart and soul. You think about Isaiah 6. He says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphim, angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. I believe in heaven, our highest joy is going to come in worshiping the Father. Might as well start getting a taste of it now. Some of us don't like worship. I want to ask, why not? Why not? It ought to consume us. Our love 
and worship of the Father. They also love to serve Him. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? They love to serve the Father. That will drive us as well. Does it drive us now to serve the Father and find great joy, unlike any other joy in it? The truth is, though our translation said we're equal to the angels, some other translations say we're like the angels. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, we're actually going to be above the angels. Do you know that? Think about the angels in the Bible. Gabriel, Michael. This is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Obviously, the judgment goes towards the fallen angels. But the indication there is we're going to be higher than angels. Now think about this from the angel's perspective. We talked about this at lunch on Thursday. At least the ones that are still in heaven and didn't revolt, they've been serving Him perfectly since they were created. I wonder if they ever look at us and say, what? (laughs) Look at all they've done. And and He's going to make them higher than us? J.B. Phillips painted it poetically. When Jesus came down as a baby... There were two angels talking, and one said, Do you mean that our great and glorious prince went down in person to that fifth-rate little ball? Why should he do a thing like that? The little angel's face wrinkled in disgust. Do you mean to tell me that he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures of that floating ball? The other angel says, I do. And I don't think he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. That ought to blow our minds. He loved us so much to make us like him, above even the angels. So he said, guys, there is a resurrection and here's how it works. Now, one other thing about the Sadducees is they really only paid attention to the first five books of the Old Testament. All the rest of it, they didn't really believe or abide by. What he's going to show them next is that even in those first five books of the the Old Testament, there was resurrection, even in the part you believe in. He goes in verse 37 to the account of the burning bush. He says, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to Him all are alive. Now for us, we hear Moses, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we just sort of lump them all together. They're all back there in the Old Testament. For Moses, those guys had lived centuries earlier. And what Jesus is saying is, when when God says to Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, they lived physically centuries earlier, but he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because they're still alive. For to him, all are alive. I thought, what a mind-blowing perspective, right? We're limited. We're limited in our perspective. Love to play this game with my family. Any, Any Clue fans in here? Okay, I thought about this limited perspective on life and death kind of like this. We put up our first picture. You can see down here in the kitchen, 
we've got a meeting going on, right, of, of three of the characters. You've got Miss Scarlet, Professor Plum, and Colonel Mustard. They're all in the kitchen. But, you know, when you play that game, you can call people in other places, right? So let's go to the next slide. I called Professor Plum to the ballroom. Now imagine, if you will, the conversation between Colonel Mustard and Miss Scarlet. Where'd he go? Where is Professor Plum? He was just standing here, and now he's gone. Must have been the end of Professor Plum. But is it the end of Professor Plum? No. He's just been called to another place. And I think about that perspective of someone who plays the game of Clue. It's similar to God's perspective. We know someone's gone. God knows they're very much alive. And if they believed in Jesus Christ, they're very much alive in His presence. I think some of us would, would do well to meditate on His big perspective and take comfort in that. Live by faith. Trust that there is more than we see. Now verse 39 says, Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. Now if you've been going with us, you're like, wait a second, did they just compliment him after he spoke truth? They did, but you know who these guys most likely are? The teachers of the law? They're the Pharisees that fight with the Sadducees all the time. So they see the Sadducees put in their spot. And they say, great point, Jesus. Yeah, burn, Sadducees. <laughs> and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now I think about the Sadducees. I think some of them really, truly believed they, they loved God with all their heart. But you know what? They had some serious blind spots in what they believed. They didn't believe things that are true. They only believed certain parts of the Bible. And even in those parts, they didn't believe all that was there. And I, I think about blind spots. And I think about a couple of weeks ago, I went to our men's group. And it was one of those cold mornings where you had to scrape your car. And I scraped the front windshield off. But I didn't have time to scrape the, the driver's side door. So I get to my first right turn. And I'm like, I don't know if anybody's coming. So I had to open my door. <laughs> so I could see if somebody's coming down this road. And I closed it and then I went on. That ice was creating a serious blind spot. I, I should have just scraped that ice off so I didn't have that blind spot to be safe. But I think about our beliefs and I wonder what blind spots do we have and our belief, because most of us are pretty good at thinking, I got it all figured out now. Some of us come to a place in our lives where we think, eh, I'm good. And we stop growing in what we know about Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit and His church. Some of us focus only on certain parts of the Bible. You know, we all have our favorite parts. Some of us focus overwhelmingly only on certain beliefs and doctrines and we leave other ones out. And it just leads me to ask, what blind spots do I have? And I think that would be good for us each to ask God this week. God, show me my blind spots because I want to grow. I want to know more about you, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit. I want to know you more. What blind spots do we have? That first issue dealt with the afterlife. The second and final one deals with the crucial question of who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? And this one, you remember it said nobody dared ask him any 
more questions? Jesus goes on the offensive here. He says, you guys have asked me a lot of questions. Now I'm going to ask you one. I'm going to ask you one. He says in verse 30, 41, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? Now we've got to step into their shoes. Many of those people at that time believed the Messiah was the son of David, okay? Descended from David. But many of them have begun to believe that the Messiah was only a man. A man who would deliver them from Rome and give them a great military victory. So they believe the Messiah was the son of David. Jesus is going to use that. And he says, David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And you look at this passage, and in English it doesn't come across, but where it says the Lord said to my Lord, the first Lord in Hebrew was Yahweh, the name I am in the Old Testament of God. The second word is Adonai, another name for God. What we have going on here is God the Father saying to God the Son, sit at my right hand, the place of power and authority, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus says, David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? There's only one answer to that question. The only way he can be David's Lord and his son is if he's God. That's the only way. You don't go around calling your son Lord typically. I've never done that, have you? Oh, it only makes sense if he's also God. And what he's challenging them on is how is your view of Jesus? So a lot of times we'll ask someone, do you believe in Jesus? And it's a quick yes, but Eric pointed me to maybe a more crucial question this morning. Do you worship Jesus? Do you worship Jesus? A lot of people believe there was a Jesus. The Mormons believe he was Lucifer's brother. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe he is Michael the archangel. Islam teaches he's a prophet. Hindus will tell you he was a guru. But I want to tell you this, if your Jesus isn't fully God, fully man, and his death on the cross and his resurrection is not the only way to the Father, you need to grow in your view of who Jesus is. In John 10 verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. They're one in that divine essence. In Hebrews 2, he says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He's one with God, but he shared in our humanity. And John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Is that the Jesus that you believe in? Something went around this week. I want to show it to you. I won't read every one. Some of us are okay on those points I just mentioned, but what about these ones? Biblical Jesus versus postmodern Jesus. Which category does your Jesus fall into? Biblical Jesus warns of sin, judgment, and hell. Postmodern Jesus never says anything negative. Biblical Jesus commands repentance of sins. Postmodern Jesus disregards repentance of sins. Biblical Jesus gives you salvation, hope, peace, and joy. Postmodern Jesus gives you health, wealth, and happy feelings. 
Biblical Jesus was hated and despised by the world. Postmodern Jesus is loved and accepted by the world. I'll just skip down to the bottom. You can check this out online if you type in that headline. The bottom one, commands you to deny yourself and allow Christ to work in you. Postmodern Jesus says, encourages you to gratify all your fleshly desires. Which Jesus do we believe in? I come out of that chart and I say, man, if your Jesus never says anything that makes you uncomfortable, you need to grow in your view of who Jesus is. But on the flip side, if your Jesus isn't big enough to comfort you in life's troubles, you need to grow in your understanding of who He is. How's your understanding of who He is? When I grew up, we used to sing a song in church that said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. When we think about the biblical Jesus, fully God and fully man, and we say, what difference does it make for me? I want to tell you three differences it makes as we close. First, if you believe in the biblical Jesus, it can set you free from that paralyzing fear of death. Hebrews 2 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You want to be freed from that paralyzing fear of death? Put your trust in the biblical Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, that chapter goes on. Surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Atonement speaks of forgiveness of sins. A lot of us came in here carrying a weight of things we've done in the past, things we're doing right now. And we have not been able to find peace in our souls for the sins that we know we're guilty of. Trust in the biblical Jesus is where you find that atonement. And finally, help for this life. How many of you would love some help? Listen, verse 18 in Hebrews 2 says, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Father, look at this conversation that your son had with the Sadducees and others around them. And I just pray that the truths he brings out would wash over us this morning. If anyone walked in here paralyzed by their fear of death, that you would free them from that as they trust in Jesus. Maybe for the first time. Or if anyone walked in here overwhelmed by their sin, that they would trust in His death on the cross in their place. That it was the payment of a spotless lamb in their place so that they could be made right with you. If they would only trust, turn to Him. Father, I pray for anyone in this room, all of us in this room who need help in this life. The temptations of this world come at us fast and furious. 
Your word says Jesus came to help those like us. Because He is fully God and fully man. He's able to help in our time of need. Please do that this morning. May we walk out of here fully trusting, fully worshiping, fully embracing and fully walking with the biblical Jesus. Would you show us our blind spots, Father? Help us not to stop growing. These Sadducees missed out on so much because they refused to open their minds to the truth. If there are any minds in this room closed to the truth, open them. Renew our love for your word. All of it. Help us to pursue you. To grow in our intimacy and our relationship with you. Let us never assume we've reached all there could be. You're an infinite God. Lord, may that excite us and inspire us to keep on pressing in to Jesus Christ. Thank you for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.